We're exploring a fascinating world over the next few minutes, the world of artificial insemination. It's one of those terms that we encounter on a fairly regular basis, but often encounter and maybe sort of breeze past without ever really understanding kind of the details of of how it is done, uh, the history of that technology, where it came from. And we especially don't stop to think about the ramifications, especially on a personal level. And uh, certainly that was very much the experience of my morning show guest today, uh, a gentleman by the name of Peter Bonney. And he is the author of a book called Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. Peter Bonney was 49 years old when he first learned that uh, his birth was the result of artificial insemination. He had never been told that. And because of kind of a special and complicated family situation involving uh, the man he'd always thought of as his father, uh, I mean his father in every respect except the biological, uh, this was a, a huge revelation for Peter Bonney, even larger than it would otherwise have been. And eventually Peter Bonney set out on a long voyage of exploration to try to track down uh, his biological father, whoever that man was, who had donated sperm uh, decades earlier. And uh, that journey is fascinating in and of itself. But Peter Bonney also embarked on a long journey of discovery to try to understand the history of artificial insemination. And uh, All of that is tied together and explored in this truly fascinating book. Again, it's titled Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination, published by Greenleaf. Peter Bonney, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. Happy to be here. I want to make sure our listeners uh, know the spelling of your last name, which is B-O-N-I. What kind of a name is that, may I ask? Uh, I used to think it was Northern Italian. It still is. Ah, very good. Very good. So uh, we could start our, our, our conversation in a lot of different places, but I think it makes probably the most sense for us to begin with that dramatic moment in your life uh, when you discovered this fact about yourself, that you were the product of artificial insemination. Maybe ahead of the circumstances under which you learned this information, tell us where you were uh, in your life at that time. You were 49 years old. Tell us more about where you were at the time, both professionally and also personally, in terms of your own family. Right, sure. Well, you know, three factors I always looked at to uh, have impacted the evolution of, of my frame of reference. Uh, I had a somewhat disruptive childhood, a working-class family. My dad was sick. Uh, life was rather unstable. I was in 11 different schools in several states between the first and the eighth grade. I started and finished high school in the same spot. I had a state college education, uh, the first one in my family. Uh, it opened many doors of opportunity. And then I had on-the-ground service as a special operations team leader in Vietnam, and that somewhat shaped my leadership style. But I always took my DNA for granted. Uh, In 1995, I was a business leader. I was a high-tech CEO. 
specializing in companies that were facing difficulty. So I was in a project getting a company out of hot water when my 75-year-old stroke-recovering mother spilled the beans that Dad wasn't biological. He was sterile. And uh, I was conceived with an anonymous sperm donor in the waning days of World War II with the help of Harvard Med School and a fertility clinic affiliated with Harvard Medical School. So for me, I was the same person. Nothing changed, but everything changed. Uh, my dad suffered from bouts of depression. He was hospitalized. He ended up taking his own life when I was 16. And the family kept that very quiet and perceived it as a flaw. Don't let anyone know about that. Uh, and that somewhat spilled over on me as well. Did I, was I flawed? Uh, was I carrying a flawed gene? And, you know, I always felt a little different in my family. I was fair-complected, had my dad's northern Italian blue eyes but blondish hair. Uh, as I progressed, my academic and life's achievements somewhat intimidated my family, actually on both sides. So learning this was just a confusing uh, period with many conflicting emotions. I mean, Greg, how can you feel happy and sad and empty and fulfilled and deceived and relieved all at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just incredible to think of of all that you experienced. And and in fact, it, it, in describing what you kind of felt in the aftermath of this, one of the things you said, it was a little bit like the aftermath of a hurricane, which is wonderfully peaceful. And we'll get to that in just a moment, how from this sort of tangled web of all kinds of conflicting emotions, uh, you also felt... Uh, an extraordinary sense of, of, of peace and relief. Let's talk a little more about this moment when uh, your mother revealed this uh, for the very first time. I think it's interesting to note uh, and for our listeners to know that she didn't first uh, reveal this to you. Uh, explain exactly to whom and under what circumstances she first revealed this about herself and about you? Well, she had a post-operative stroke, and she was in rehab, and she lost a little bit of her memory. And uh, as visitors were coming to the rehab center to see her, she began recounting the story. I'm sure it helped her uh, just regain, recapture her memory as well. And uh, a friend said, my gosh, uh, Chick, you need to uh, tell your son this. She said, oh, I can't tell him. He'll be mad. And she was sworn to uh, secrecy, and the whole practice of artificial insemination by donor was one where doctors swore the recipients and the donor, actually, to uh, secrecy. Uh, and it was my, my birth certificate I looked at as a big hoax. Uh, the uh, obstetrician was totally different than the uh, fertility practitioner, and uh, he was not notified that uh, my father's sperm was not the sperm used, so he could legitimately put my dad's name on my birth certificate. And that was the practice then. Right. So your mother ultimately reveals this to a number of different people, including, I believe, your wife. Yeah, my and wife told me. Describe to our listeners what that scene was like. I mean, where you learned this for the first time, not actually from your mother, but from your wife. 
So while my wife and I were having uh, dinner, we were actually in the midst of a marital crisis and un undergoing some degree of therapy at the same time, some 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 counseling. And I was a CEO of a company and ready to uh, do a, a merger and acquisition activity. My phone rang at dinner, and I figured this is the deal about ready to close, and this phone's gonna, phone call's going to take a little while. And it was my therapist on the line and not the M&A banker. And the therapist said, gosh, uh, your wife called and left me a message that she had something to relate to me that would help in your therapy, and I haven't talked to her. Why don't you? So I went back to my uh, dinner table uh, and relayed that to uh, to my wife and uh, almost growled, didn't intend to growl, but I growled, what the heck are you calling my therapist? What's going on? So we got up from the table and sat down in the living room, and she un bailed the story of my mother telling stories at the uh, rehab center. Hmm. That, uh, my, uh, after five years of uh, attempting to uh, have a child after they married, and they were not successful. She read an article or an ad in a paper about a fertility practitioner uh, affiliated with Harvard. They went to see him. After a variety of testing, they concluded that my dad was sterile, and they had a couple of choices. Uh, remain childless, one, adopt a child, two, or use this newfangled procedure with an anonymous uh, sperm donor. And it was likely that the donor would be affiliated with Harvard Medical School in some way. Hmm. That's about all I knew. Uh, she remembered the name of the doctor. Uh, she, well, I'll say she misremembered the name of the doctor because she ended up giving me the wrong name. And she gave me an address of his clinic, but that wasn't quite right either. So I had clues that were going nowhere. Hmm. One of the things that I found curious was that, I mean, I understand the part about your mother having experienced this stroke, which, of course, in a sense, broke down some of what would have been some of her restraint. We hear about that a lot, of course, with people who have experienced strokes, that, that suddenly they are kind of spilling the beans on all kinds of different things or speaking in unguarded fashion in ways that they never would have before. Um, a lock that guarded her secret no longer worked. Right. Uh, what, what still strikes me as a little bit strange is why, of all things, it would be this that she would talk about. Do you think it is because it was this long-held secret and there was something that, I mean, that it gave her a sense of relief to release this secret that she had held so closely for, for decades? Do you think that's why she spoke about this? Perhaps so. I mean, she was holding out for 50 years, 5-0. This was on the edge of my turning 50. And when you speak to her, I think it's really interesting that at first she denies this. Uh, I mean, she, one, once you've heard this from your wife and you are able to speak to your mother for the very first time, she at first uh, is not able to admit that all of this is true. Tell us more about that that situation and what it felt like when your mother finally relented and admitted that indeed it was true. I wonder in those first moments when she's denying it if you felt that there was any possibility that maybe this was some sort of fantasy she had created out of a mental fog, or were you quite certain that this had to be true and just waited for her confirmation? You know, I had my own suspicions, but uh, I, I didn't know why. I, I just knew 
I didn't know what, rather. I just knew I had suspicion. So uh, I wasn't surprised in that regard, but I was hugely surprised nonetheless. Uh, I took her home from rehab. Uh, we arranged a dinner. She got dressed for the first time since uh, coming back from uh, the uh, hospital in the rehab center. We finished uh, dinner, did some small talk, and just said, Mom, we have to talk. Uh, this is a story you've been telling. Uh, and uh, she said, no, that's not, that's not true. And we put it out there again, well, I must have been delusional. And uh, she continued to uh, deny the story, and then my wife said to her, you know, you got to put it out there. Um, I told her that I had always been a little concerned about my uh, inheritance of my father's problem. And uh, I made up a story when I was a kid uh, about my father's uh, unipolar depression and how that was... The doctor told me it was a result of uh, some medical procedures that he had as a child, and it upset his brain chemistry. And that was a way to protect me. And uh, I tried it on my, on my mother when I was a teenager, and that seemed to fly with her, too. So that was our story. But I told her that, that I had made that story all up. Uh, it was just a way to protect myself. And when I, when I divulged that, she just broke down and uh, confided that, okay, you were conceived with the help of an anonymous donor, uh, your dad was sterile, and et cetera. Mm. And then she broke down and cried in her room for about 15 minutes before she returned. Wow. As I said earlier, in the wake of this, and you, you spelled out this uh, wild tangle of varying emotions uh, that, that this evoked from you, but you also felt this enormous sense of peace and relief uh, because you suddenly knew that the man you knew as your father, he was not your biological father, and you did not sort of carry biologically whatever legacy there was that had led him uh, to the tragic uh, path of suicide. Uh, in the wake of learning this and knowing that it was true, then what did you decide you need to do? Well, I wanted to uh, find the source of my seed. Uh, what was my uh, genealogy? Uh, what was my genealogical medical history? Uh, did I have any siblings? Uh, I was just compelled to, uh, to, to uh, answer those questions. But I was uh, really messed up from an emotional standpoint. I was, you know, not Italian, okay, not flawed uh, any more than anyone else, uh, but uh, had all of these conflicting emotions. Uh, I learned that, uh, I learned a word when I was researching this thing. The word was misattributed. I was misattributed. I never knew the word misattributed before. I knew other miswords, you know, the misnomer, misconceived, misunderstood. Never misattributed. Uh, misattributed is that your DNA and your birth certificate just don't jive. There's something askew, either with one or both of your uh, your parents. And the experts, in quotes, uh, believe that some two to four percent of us are misattributed. Uh, 
some experts think it's a little less, some think it's a lot more, but they'll basically agree to the 2 to 4% uh, range. Uh, and how can that be? Uh, well, the largest is the uh, folks that, un that learn that they were adopted late in life with closed adoption. Uh, you could be misattributed from an extramarital affair or a one-night stand or an unreported sexual assault. You could have been switched at birth or, like me, semi-adopted. Uh, in the old days, that's what they called artificial insemination with an anonymous donor. Uh, I was uh, so uh, conflicted and so emotional about this whole thing that I, with the support of my wife and the encouragement of some of my friends, I went to seek some therapy. Now, in the boardroom and in the uh, war room, I had experienced that uh, anyone who sought therapy was perhaps uh, weak or flawed and unfit for command. So I was a CEO, and I needed this therapy, and I was very quiet about uh, getting it. And I found a uh, therapist that specialized in uh, trauma and uh, he was funny. He said, congratulations, son, you hit a trifecta because new trauma rekindles old trauma that was thought long past. And I had traumas from my childhood and the sickness of my dad and certainly from the PTSD of war and coming back from Vietnam. I was just one of those folks that just never talked about it. The society didn't want to hear about it. Hmm. So you had a lot to unpack, a, a lot to sort of sort out, and of course, ultimately, you went on a long journey to also discover exactly where and from whom you had you had come. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Peter Bonney, and we're talking about his book, Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. We have not spent enough time talking about your father, and in particular, we have not talked about who he was and, and especially all of the positive traits that uh, for a long time made him uh, quite a heroic figure to you uh, in, your, in your eyes. And I, I really appreciate the, the affection and sensitivity with which you write about your father. Again, we're talking about uh, the man you always knew as your father growing up. Uh, tell our listeners more about who he was, and uh, some of your most powerful memories of him uh, as a father, apart from the difficulties, which we'll talk about next. Well, my dad, I thought, was a wonderful guy. He was really the hero of his family. He was ambitious, adventurous, generous. He was kind. I mean, he did not intentionally get sick, uh, but he suffered from bouts of depression. Uh, and as a younger man, he could just shake them off until he, he just couldn't. Uh, Old-school Italian family kept his condition hushed, uh, believing that his mental illness reflected upon them, and they sought scapegoats for his illness, too, uh, my mother and me. So after four years of repeated hospitalization, my dad just took his own life. Uh, I was just 16. Uh, I found that suicide just creates a wound that never heals, by the way, and I felt all that guilt and shame, and I felt abandoned and flawed. And I feared that his illness would actually pass on to me. 
And that knowledge that I carried a different gene pool by itself just lifted a huge cloud. And like I said, it took some therapy for me to internalize that being flawed is a human condition. I'm no flawed, no more flawed than anybody else. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that was so so tough, of course, was when your family, it was really at your urging, relocates to Boston where I believe your dad's family was and uh, out, out of the hope that maybe being close to his relatives, uh, your, your dad would, would begin to do better and begin to recover. Uh, in fact, it was a, a very difficult situation when you relocated to Boston and his family, uh, while I'm sure still loving him, in a sense, really kind of stayed emotionally at arm's length. I mean, they were troubled by his troubles, and it sounds like they didn't really know what to do about that. Can you just describe that situation to us a little more? Well, you know, mental illness reflected upon them, they thought, uh, not really understood as well, you know, old school prejudices on it. Uh, A lot of whispers in the back room, uh, when uh, we were at a dinner table about his illness as well. And they just didn't understand it and didn't want to be associated with it. I felt as though they were abandoning him and abandoning me. Right. At one point you write, in the collective eyes of my dad's family, I was the son of an embarrassment. And, um, I mean, it's probably important to say that that's, that's how it felt from your perspective uh, if they were to be asked, uh, you know, they might characterize it differently, but certainly that's the way you felt like they were looking to you. And in in the wake of this tragedy of his suicide, when, again, you were just 16 years old, uh, describe what you did in terms of trying to remake yourself and the kind of person that you desperately wanted to be. Well, at his uh, nearest funeral... I probably had a Scarlett O'Hara moment. You know, you look up at the sky, uh, and as God is my witness, I'm going to get past this, and uh, I'll, I'll uh, won't let this hold me down, and I'll just never be hungry again. Not that I was hungry, but uh, I was uh, bound and determined to make something of my life and just be uh, successful and have some means. We had we had absolutely no money. Uh, uh, impoverished, I think, is is a, is a word I would use. So I was just committed to uh, take all of my energy and be a successful person to get past this. And so you... I did all, that I did a lot of denial. I didn't really grieve like I should have grieved for the loss of my dad. Well, ultimately, of course, you do achieve tremendous uh, professional success. Although I think, you know, one thing you're very honest about in your book is that your drive to be successful and that I'll never be hungry again, uh, that, that drive caused certain, certain problems, particularly with your, with your marriage. And I appreciate the frankness with which you, you share about that. So we, we step back to that moment when you are 49 years old and you learn for the first time that the man that you thought of as your father was not your biological father and that, in fact, you had been born via 
artificial insemination. I'm curious, at the time that you learned that, did you even know that such a thing was possible? I mean, I was shocked. I, I, I know very little about this before reading your book, and I never would have dreamt that there was such a thing as artificial insemination back in 1944, the year that your parents first went to this fertility specialist. I'm, I'm a little surprised there were fertility specialists in 1944, let alone something like artificial insemination. Were you similarly surprised, or did you know a little more than I do, and, and were you... Or, or, or was that kind of a, a shocking revelation, not only that this was your story, but that such a thing was even possible so so long ago? Yeah, I, I did a lot of research on it. I knew about the 1995 version of it and, and maybe read a few, couple of articles and, and I knew of sperm banks and that sort of thing, but uh, had no uh, no sense at all as to what was going on or the, uh, the history of it. Uh, so I had... Uh, Used some of my mother's clues that were not good clues at all, uh, and I just ran into stone walls. Uh, there were no records kept. Uh, my mother misremembered the name and location of the fertility specialist. The internet, by the way, was in its infancy. Google had another three years to even be founded, <laughs> and then DNA over the internet itself was 12 years away from its first introduction by 23andMe. So all of those stone walls fueled what was my only recourse, uh, which was therapeutic for me, actually, Greg, and that is a, a deep dive of research into the scientific, the sociological, and the legal history and the evolution of assisted reproductive technology and all of its secrets of practice, practices. And I looked at it from early biblical references right through to today that, that enabled my conception in the first place. And part of the thing that drove me was uh, genealogical bewilderment. In the mid-60s, uh, a pair of psychologists were studying some uh, late-discovery adoptees and some issues that they were facing regarding their sense of belonging. And uh, the premise is that anyone who is misattributed uh, by whatever the reason uh, will suffer from these confusing and conflicting emotions and be raging with this genealogical bewilderment to find the source of their gene pool, to find their genealogical health history, and ask the same question, do they have any siblings? Hmm. So the more I learned about the evolution of assisted reproductive technology, actually, Greg, the more I was energized to write what uh, is somewhat of an expose from a very unique lens, uh, my lens of being a donor-conceived person, on what has become a multi-billion-dollar industry, and it has several sub-segments that are all free from federal regulation, by the way, and uh, the growth in those sub-segments, like sperm and egg and embryo, would attract the likes of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Well, and uh, that's one of the things we'll explore is this lack of regulation in this industry. You write at one point in your book, the breeding of puppies enjoys greater oversight than, uh, than this industry of reproductive, uh, assisted reproductive technology. Uh, give us some sense of just how long a timeline we are talking about. I mean, at what point in, in human history were there the first serious explorations of 
some kind of assistance of this nature into the reproductive process? I mean, where does this begin? Well, you know, you've got the top ten secrets of assisted reproductive technology here, uh, uh, Greg. Uh, uh, the first one is that artificial insemination was actually perfected by an exiled mad scientist that history has nicknamed Red Frankenstein, and that was in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, but artificial insemination by a husband was first alleged in 1462 by a medieval king. And it was first documented in the 18th century by a physician of English royalty. Uh, but the very first artificial insemination by a donor uh, took place in 1884 in the Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. And it was basically a criminal act inside of a medical school. And my book will outline all of that. Uh, church and state just drove assisted reproductive technology uh, and uh, donor insemination underground in a shroud of secrecy throughout the 20th century. And the practices carried somewhat of a eugenics tone. Hmm. Uh, by the mid-50s, uh, back to the farm, frozen bull semen actually enabled today's Wild West of gamut distribution. And then uh, you have 21st century science that has obsoleted 20th century practices in assisted reproductive technology. Mm. Uh, in the last 40 years, you have fertility rates in the Western world that are down. How much do you think? Quite a lot, I understand, from your book. I don't remember the specific number. Yeah, fertility rates down 50, 50 percent a combination of environmental factors and people just waiting longer to uh, raise a family and the, the biological clock doesn't work for them. But the population of donor-conceived people in the last decade is up 50%. So your fertility rates down 50, the population of donor-conceived people up 50. Now, the, the tenth secret of uh, assisted reproductive technology is a secret that hasn't been unveiled yet. And that is, uh, given the uh, ethical dilemma, uh, there's another Red Frankenstein out there who is yet to be nicknamed. One of the things you say is that because this is happening at such uh, st staggering numbers, I mean, so many people engaging in uh, artificial insemination, that, and, and because it, is, it lacks so many... It, controls and oversights that we have the specter of one anonymous sperm donor uh, perhaps being responsible for 100 or more siblings, uh, 100 or more siblings who very likely will not know anything about each other's existence. I mean, are we, are we really talking about numbers like that? Yes, no question. We have an assisted reproductive technology industry today that just is free from regulatory oversight, and that enables that conception of dozens, even a hundred, unknowing siblings from the same gamut donor. And there's no requirement, by the way, for testing. There's no requirement for registry, and there's no laws to combat what we might term as fertility fraud. Uh, that's when I when I learned this. I had a friend who was breeding Rottweilers, and uh, he gave me his view that you mentioned. That is, the breeding of puppies is better supervised. Uh, the fix on this thing is a regulatory oversight in the form of a donor-conceived bill of rights. 
and I'm hopeful that I can use my book to shine the light on this thing to uh, enable this donor-conceived Bill of Rights. One of the things you say is that the United States lags behind other countries when it comes to uh, controlling and, and regulating uh, assisted reproductive uh, technology industry. Um, so, in other words, in other countries where perhaps this has been in place longer or talked about more openly longer, uh, there are regulations and controls that uh, that are significantly different from what are what exist here in the United States? It's a patchwork quilt, uh, Greg, depending upon the country. Uh, here we have dedicated medical practitioners uh, amidst a small sub-segment of, uh, let's call them rogues with no laws, the expanding science that is frozen sperm, frozen egg, the embryoid, the surrogacy, the uterine implants, all have created a, a billion-dollar sub-segments in a, in a hugely profitable industry. Uh, the social and legal acceptance of uh, artificial insemination by donor has certainly uh, enhanced over the uh, beginning of the 21st century. Uh, but the distribution of gametes that sperm egg embryoid has little regulatory oversight. It's a wild west that's actually gone uh, over the internet like a flea market. Uh, we have uh, industries uh, that are not doing well with self-regulation. That's why we have the SEC and the FDA and the FTC and the FCC and uh, there's a Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, the National Organ Transplant Act. Uh, all giving some regulation to uh, varying industries, but in the fertility arena, we have a self-regulated industry with uh, flawed, obsolete practices that enable the conception of uh, a dozen or even a hundred unknowing siblings from the same donor. Why is it? Why do we have this situation? I mean, that is. How do you explain that lack of regulation? Because, as you just pointed out, we we regulate all kinds of things. Uh, why not this? I mean, is there a particular reason why uh, regulation is so strangely absent? I mean, is it because the industry itself has lobbied hard and aggressively to feign off any attempts, or have there not been serious attempts to create regulation? Well, my own view is that uh, your eighth grade science teacher was right, that inertia is a very powerful force. There's nothing stronger than the status quo, uh, the free market, uh, with uh, some uh, assistance of lobbying, has kept this, uh, in quotes, self-regulated. Uh, there's an organization uh, today that's the American, American Society of Reproductive medicine, it's American in name only because they have members in over 100 different countries. And uh, it's a uh, trade association that provides uh, networking and educational opportunities and uh, public policy initiatives. That's a fancy way to say lobbying to maintain the status quo. One of the things your book points out is who tends to engage in this, that, that is, who seeks out uh, artificial insemination, and uh, you kind of spell out at least the rough numbers in time in terms of 
of the people and the kind of couples uh, that seek out this particular assistance. Spell that out for our listeners, please. Well, it's changed over time, but uh, science will tell you that 15% of us have uh, fertility issues. That's one five, 15%. Uh, 40% are because of an issue with a woman. Uh, 40% an issue with a man. And in 20% of the cases, they each have issues. Uh, and it used to be that the, uh, the couples, uh, 15% of, of uh, couples is a pretty large market, and that was the market for uh, donor conception. Uh, you have the uh, industry today that's evolved. It's not only sperm donors, and, uh, but it's egg donors. We've been able to uh, harvest eggs. We've been able to uh, uh, preserve embryos and freeze them. We've been able to do uterine transplants. We've been able to do births by surrogacy. So it's expanded the definition of artificial insemination and expanded the definition of the uh, target recipient. Uh, and sociology has changed. Uh, the uh, definition of a couple now is not necessarily a married couple, uh, nor is it a heterosexual couple. And there's... Uh, a sociology that has enabled single people also to have children. So the marketplace is much bigger today than it used to be. Speaking of marketplace, uh, one of the things that we at least used to hear about is how incredibly expensive it was uh, to pursue this. I mean, that, that uh, a, a, for instance, a given couple uh, with fertility issues might easily spend tens of thousands of dollars uh, trying to become pregnant uh, via one of these, you know, kind of th through this uh, through this kind of te technology. Uh, was it terribly expensive when your mother pursued this back in the 1940s? Is it still expensive today, or is this expanding market sort of changing some of the dynamics of how much this tends to cost? Uh, everything is relative. Uh, it was expensive for my parents. There was no insurance uh, for this. Uh, today, it is continually expensive. However, insurance companies, to a, uh, a greater or lesser degree, have incorporated some degree of uh, fertility uh, in their benefits. Now, not all insurance companies will do this, but some will. And maybe it's a modest recovery, but it's a recovery nonetheless. But overall, uh, it's a socioeconomic issue for uh, for people. Mm. One thing you mention in your book in passing is uh, the term illegitimate uh, and, and of somebody being an, an illegitimate child. And uh, you tell us that that this is one, one area of legislation in which uh, – something has been spelled out and that you, for instance, if I understand this correctly, uh, are a legitimate child, uh, even though biologically your mother and father uh, were, were not the, 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 the mother and father who, who, who raised you. Uh, can you untangle that for us, this term illegitimate? Sure. Well, you know, in, uh, in legal terms, uh, setting a legal precedent is, is a huge thing. And in 1921, I believe it was, the Canadian courts uh, viewed artificial insemination by a donor as an uh, adulterous act 
and the resulting child was considered illegitimate. Uh, the European courts took that in the later 20s, and they reinforced that. And by country, by country and state by state, that continued to be the case. Uh, by the time of my conception in uh, 1945, there was a Time magazine article that came out, and uh, they were reviewing the uh, legal status of a, a child as a result of a court case that went on in the Superior Courts in Cook County, Illinois. Uh, and the title of this article was Artificial Bastards with a Question Mark. Uh, what was the status of a child uh, who was conceived from artificial insemination by an uh, anonymous donor? And again, the courts concluded that the uh, act was an adulterous act and the child was illegitimate. Hmm. So for me, with the hoax, and the practice was the hoax, that is that the uh, insemination took place didn't tell the obstetrician, and the obstetrician simply put the name of the husband on the birth certificate. So in that regard, hey, I'm perfectly legitimate. My birth certificate says that. Now, law has changed a little, too, in uh, the 50 years since the legal precedent was set. I think it was in 1973 the uh, Universal Parentage Act uh, took away the word legitimate from a uh, couple and did not require a couple to be married to have, in quotes, a legitimate child. In uh, 2002 and again in 2015, the UPA was adjusted to re reflect uh, donor insemination and then reflect same-sex marriage. Hmm. Let's finish uh, our conversation by talking about uh, this long journey you took to try to discover your own biological roots, to uh, try and learn the identity of, of your biological father and, uh, and whether or not you had any siblings. So tell us just a little bit about that, that long search and what you have been able to eventually uncover. Well, with the 21st century technology, we had uh, a new company in 2007 came out that was 23andMe and the uh, the uh, DNA over the Internet for then $999, and I was among their early customers that signed up to uh, seek my uh, my genealogy, seek my medical uh, history, and find if I had any siblings. Now, 23andMe, as uh, a new company, gave me the what I wasn't Northern Italian. I was English, French, and Scandinavian on my paternal side. Uh, and it gave me a summary reflection of my uh, Gene Poole's medical uh, aberrations and the, or the lack thereof. Uh, and I reviewed that with my doctor at the time who uh, told me, congratulations, it looks like I don't see any red flags here, but continue to practice good uh, health care maintenance. But I didn't find any paternal relatives on 23andMe. But it was a new company, and the database was growing, so I gave it several years and kept on checking it out, looking for a paternal relative. I found a lot of maternal relatives, but no paternal relative. Uh, in 2012, actually, Ancestry.com, that was organized around doing family trees and, and records, uh, came out with a DNA test, and by 2017, 
they had actually grown their database of customers to be as large or much larger than 23andMe. So I went off and I spit in the 23, in, or rather in the Ancestry.com vial and uh, found a paternal relative. It said close relative, first cousin with a question mark. And it was no question to me that that was a paternal relative, and that was the first one I had seen. So I went off and uh, contacted that person through uh, the email system that Ancestry.com had, and that person was terrific and was a champion for me to uh, find the source of my seed in in that family tree. So we, we were successful in that. So I found the source of my seed and uh, found my medical history and defined a sibling. And I think you have found more than one sibling. There are six of us at last count. Now, my questions have gone from do I have any siblings to how many siblings do I have really? Hmm. Uh, the last one I found was actually in, uh, there were a few of them, in uh, February. And we call February new sibling season. <laughs> it's the uh, the uh, 23me and Ancestry.com and the other sites have holiday sales on Black Friday. And that adds about 2 million people to the database, and it takes eight weeks for, to process. So in February, there's another couple of million people in the database, uh, many of whom will be surprised. Wow. And you, I think, have met at least uh, one or two of the siblings. Uh, I've, but... met, I've met two sisters in this whole process, and mm. uh, this is the, uh, uh, the bonus uh, this is a home run for me. I'm, I'm, I grew up as an only child, and I'm an only child who's developed new relationships with some siblings that are really nice people, and they resemble me, and uh, we share DNA. Hmm. A last quick question. If you could wave a magic wand and bring some regulation or control uh, into the assisted reproductive uh, technology industry, what would be the first thing you would do? What is most needed? Well, it's a donor-conceived bill of rights that are really needed. I appreciate that donors and uh, and uh, recipients all have rights, uh, but there's no law in a book that gives any right to the donor-conceived person. I would abolish donor anonymity uh, and not deal with don- known donors only, since we have DNA science that has abolished it anyway de facto. Uh, that seems like it's a slam dunk. I'd mandate donor genetic testing and then the disclosure of uh, donor health history. I'd limit donor offspring. Uh, today there's uh, guidelines, but they're bad guidelines, not a good law, and they still enable the birth of uh, over 100 siblings per donor. I'd establish a sibling registry that lets these varying siblings know who each other might be. Uh, would you want to date a sibling? Would you want your children to date the uh, child of your sibling? Uh, I would require donor and recipient counseling about the needs of a donor-conceived child, and I'd enact some legal recourse for blatant fertility fraud. Uh, today, there's uh, you can admonish a person and say, gee, that was very unethical, but there's no law against it. There's no recourse. Hmm. 
The book, again, is Uprooted, Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination, published by Greenleaf, the author Peter Bonney. Peter Bonney, thank you so much for giving the world this fascinating book, and very best wishes to you. Thank you, sir.